Welcome to Seek, Go, Create. We redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. This is your host, Tim Winders. If you hear anything that educates you or inspires you, and I'm sure that you will, please subscribe and share Seek, Go, Create with others. This is how we spread the message, people like you sharing what we do. We appreciate that and we thank you for that. Thank you for listening in. I'm going to go ahead and jump in to introduce our guest because I've been excited about this for some time and I didn't realize even how excited I was until I was doing some additional preparation yesterday. And I'll share as we get going how timely this is for myself, my wife, and our family in just a moment. So we have Mitzi Perdue as our guest, and she is the daughter of one family business, Titan. The father founded the Sheraton Hotel, Hotel Change. Yes, that's one. And the widow of another, her late husband, was the family business poultry magnate, Frank Perdue. And, uh, and she's also a businesswoman. We're going to have discussions about that. But one of the fascinating things about that we're going to listen in on is her ability to discuss family history, family legacy, and what we can all do. And then we're just going to tap in on a, the, a lot of the wisdom that she has. She's also an author. We'll discuss some of the books she's done. But Mitzi, welcome to Seat Go Create. What a total joy to be here with you. And I just love the premise of, you know, the, the title says lots of things that I just endorse and love. So I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Excellent. All right, Mitzi, my first question I like to ask guests, I've done the bio and there's a lot more I could have read. There's so much, so much on, on your bio, but what I really love to do is to just pretend that we bump into each other, we're out somewhere or whatever, whatever we can do in the world we're in today. And I ask the question, Mitzi, what do you do? If someone asks you that, how do you respond? All right. Uh, what I do today is uh, speaking of seat, go create. I'm very involved in combating human trafficking, and I have some ways to do it that help other anti-trafficking organizations. I, I help raise funds for them, and I help raise awareness of the whole issue. But in addition to that, I also speak about family businesses, and I love to tell, tell stories of how my late father built the Sheraton Hotel Corporation from no employees to 20,000 at the time of his death. And I also like to tell about how my late husband, Frank Perdue, my hero, uh, how he had a remarkably similar story to my late father. He started with no employees. And at the time of his death, he also employed 20,000 people. So I love to share how they did it. And then the final thing about me, if anybody wants to know how I became what I am today, which is uh, a writer, a broadcaster, a communicator, a speaker. Wow, excellent. Okay, so there's so much there. I've I had questions written down, but you said something that kind of altered my first next question, I guess. Yay! Because what I really want to do is, as as someone who's engaging with you, uh, other than email for the first time, I want to go ahead and hear a few of those stories and jump right into that because I think it's going to allow for us to do layers with our with our follow up that we do. So, so and I know it's probably not a few moments story, but tell a little bit of the history of both of those family legacies. You can start with, you know, Henderson, because it fascinates me. I love hearing, I'm a business guy, 
man Yay. of faith, also leadership guy. So I love hearing these things and I believe our audience will too. So let's start with the Henderson family. Give us a, you know, overview, the story, and then I'll possibly follow up and then maybe we'll move to the Purdue's and go from there. This is going to be fascinating. Oh, I'd love that. Well, my late father and my uncles founded the Sheraton Hotel Company or corporation back in the 1930s. And that was a time when, when, you know, it was the time of the Great Depression. There was 25% unemployment. And that meant sort of a little bit like today with COVID-19, that people weren't going to hotels and the whole hotel industry was just, you know, in the most dire straits and nobody would buy any hotels. So a hotel that was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy would probably find no buyers. My father, on the other hand, he was president as well as co-founder. He figured out some ways of making a hotel be financially stable and strong and so successful that after he bought the first hotel and it did well, he had enough money to buy two more hotels. And after that, he bought four hotels. And at the end of his life, he had 400 hotels. And by the way, we did sell the, the company on his death, but I grew up, you know, it was, it was really kind of cool. Um, I got to grow up as a hotel heiress and you know, trust me, that can be really fun. However, I, I want to mention something, a really important part of the story. You know, I'd love to share how he did it because I was forever asking him how he did it. But I'd also like to share a little bit about what his theories were on child rearing because I think that's as important today as it was back then. Which one of those should I go for? How he did it or and or uh, parenting know, let's, theories? Let's, let's do the how because I want to have some family discussion in a moment. So let's do the how of business and then we'll move to that. How about that? Okay, father, yeah, as, as a little girl, I was forever asking daddy how he did it because it was just so clear to me that this guy was really successful. Uh, like, well, we, I, I went to public schools as well as private schools and I was really aware that the house that I lived in was very different from the houses of my classmates and so forth. So I knew he was a success and I'm asking him, how did you do it? He had, he had several answers. But here's one of them. He, he told me that the success of, of the company was the people who worked for the company at every level. And that brings up the question, well, how did you inspire people to, you know, stay with you for life and be willing to go to the extra mile continuously? Because that's what it took to, to build a big company. You have, to, you have to be the kind of leader that people want to follow and that they're enthusiastic about coming to work and that they will go the extra mile. So I was asking him, how do you, how do you get that kind of engagement? And he told me a story, which I'll now share with you. He said that whenever he'd take over a hotel and we're talking you know, during the great depression, he said the first thing that he'd do when he had, when he had bought a hotel would be he'd invite all the employees and that there, there can easily be four or 500, 600 employees and invite them all to come into the, into the hotel ballroom and he'd address them you know, as the new owner. But he told me that he knew ahead of time that every person in his audience was probably half scared to death because you know, it's typical when a hotel's you know, on the edge of bankruptcy for the new owners to get rid of the dead wood, to bring in their own team and take care of their cousins and uncles and nephews. 
So everybody in the audience is worrying about, you know, is today the day I get fired? Well, Father knew that, and he also knew that they probably weren't going to really absorb a word he said until he took care of that, that great big looming question in the minds of his audience. So the first words out of his mouth were, I want every one of you to keep your job. And I have a reason for wanting you to keep your job. I know that you know your job better than anybody else on the planet. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you're gonna see as a team, as we all work together, we're gonna to turn this hotel around. And you'll see in a couple of months, it's going to be the most successful, the most financially sound, the most popular hotel in the city. And on top of that, as a team, you know, these are dark times, but we're gonna show the whole city that things can turn around and get better. Uh, yeah, imagine how, how an employee would feel, you know, walking in there thinking, oh my gosh, today's the day I'll be fired, to, hey, this guy believes in me and, and that we're a team and that we're gonna be an inspiration to the whole rest of the city. Cool? Yeah, that's very cool because what it does too is it instills, it eliminates fear as much as can be eliminated. And then it instills hope at a time that probably many people can relate to right now where things seem somewhat hopeless. You know, there's there's a lot of lack of hope and, and we don't see that in a lot of leaders. You know, that's something that we don't see definitely from a political standpoint, not to get into all of that, but we, we don't see a lot of people that cast that we are going to do all that we can to make sure that you're taken care of. And we're going to make, we're going to do all we can to make sure that the organization is moving forward and succeeding because both those go together. So that's beautiful, Mitzi. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. But that's, I've got uh, to mention that there's a PS to it and then there's a PP go. to it. Yes. Keep going. Okay. The, the, the PS to the story is, I asked Father, you know, why did you just kind of give it away saying that they could, uh, they could keep their job no matter what? You know, why not make them earn it? And he said, that's not the best approach. Instead, he said, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. And so he wanted it such that, well, to take an example, that the chambermaid who's making beds or the bartender who's pouring drinks, that they're just not making beds or pouring drinks. No, they're a team that's going to show the whole city how good things can be. And, you know, that I think you're going to be much more eager to, to come to work if, if you've got a better vision of yourself, that you're, you're not making beds, you're not pouring drinks, you're not lugging suitcases around. No, you're, you're doing something inspirational. So, and, but I haven't gotten to the PS to the story yet. The okay. PS is, <laughs> He told me, I remember there's a PPS, but he told me that the next day, the employees would get to see something that they probably never expected to see, which is if a hotel is yeah, really going downhill, you know, it's probably got stains in the carpets and frayed curtains. But he said he would, uh, this part's expected, he would have you know, decorators and plumbers and electricians and just people coming to spruce up the hotel. But he said what the workers would not expect is that in every single case, the first places that he would spruce up would be areas that the paying public would never see. 
they would be like the employee dining room, the, well, let's say the showers, the, the locker rooms, maybe the, the corridors, you know, just stuff that, that the public would never see, but the workers would see. And he said, yeah, that goes along with demonstrating to the employees how important they were to him, that he would spend the first money in every single case, not on the areas that the public would see, but on the areas that the employees would feel. And, and father's opinion was that since the employees were the most important resource, that it was just critically important to send the signal to them how much he valued them. Wow, that's beautiful. And you know, what a, what a great um, example of just honoring people. And, well, uh, look how far it took him, 400 hotels, 20,000 employees at the time of his death. And he was famous for that if you started working with him, you stayed with him for life. And, wow. uh, and you know, he could never have grown the hotels like he did if people weren't working for something, you know, a, a better vision. And the, I, I told you there was a PS, and if you're ready for the PPS, which, which I love, and again, it's something that so applies to today. And here it is. You know, again, I'm a little girl asking him how he did it. And I said, you know, how come, how come you just let people have their jobs rather than earning it in some way? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe threatening them, maybe bribing them in one way or another, uh, getting the maximum performance from them. I don't think I used those terms as a little girl, but, but it is what I was trying to get at. And his answer, which I recommend to absolutely everybody today because it still counts. He said that in his world, there were three ways to get people to do what you want. He said the first one, and again, this is how he looks, looked at the world. The first one was, he told me, I could have stood up in front of 700 employees and I could have told them, shape up or you're fired. And he said, you can probably get people to shape up, but they'll do it grudgingly. Uh, they'll do the absolute minimum that they can get by with and keep their jobs. He said that form of getting people to do what you want is intimidation. He said, you know, it's just, how about almost universally wrong because you're not gonna get the best of people by irritating them and make them, making them mad at you and making them afraid of you. He said, in his world, that was just a lousy approach. He said, the second way to get people to do what you want is, he said, I could have stood up there in front of them and I could have said, do a great job and there's a bonus in it for you. Do a super job and there's a raise in it for you. But he said, that's too transactional, that people would work for the reward rather than the bigger picture, which is we're a team making the whole place great. So he didn't like intimidation. And you know, one of the reasons is he said, you have to keep upping the ante. You know, just psychologically, somebody gets used to their raise very fast or they get used to their bonus very fast. It's, it's no longer deeply motivating. So I mentioned, I think I mentioned that there were three ways of, of getting people to do what you want. Intimidation, bad. Bribery, not good. So what was left? And he said, inspiration. He said that when people are working for something bigger than themselves, 
they will go the extra mile. They'll be excited to come to work. Their job becomes deeply meaningful to them. And that, in his view, was the secret of, of what made Sheraton grow and be a spectacular success. Because, now he didn't say this, but this is me observing, because of the way he treated people. Wow, that's, those are excellent lessons just right there. And, and then I want to, you brought up the aspect of family and, and children and rearing children. I think what I'd like to do now, though, because we're kind of, we've got some business momentum here. I would like to pause that. I made notes here. I've been taking notes while we're going along because I want to have a deeper discussion about family related to a lot of things. So at this time, could we jump over to that Purdue line and maybe pull, I'm sure you, you mentioned there's some things that we could glean from that also, maybe some similar items. So let's stay in that business realm if we can. And I'm then cool. we're going to, good. I thought you, I thought you might be. And so Mitzi, if you could, what are some lessons we could all learn from the way that that line of your legacy, your family that you have, you've obviously married into that one, but still you're a part of that. What can we learn from, from what he did and that, uh, that, that business that he created? Well, in, in separate ways, both men did, went to enormous effort to make the people that they, who worked with them feel important. And there, there was one, you know, people often ask me, were you part of running Purdue Farms? And the answer is absolutely not, except in one teeny tiny way, which I think was very important. And that is when Frank and I first got married, uh, it occurred to me that it would be a really good idea, which he didn't think at all at the beginning, that it would be a really good idea to entertain every single person who worked for the company. And it was 16,000 people at that point. And so I suggested it to Frank. And you know, his, his immediate reaction was, no, that's totally impractical. You know, 16,000 people, no. And I said, as if I hadn't realized that he had said no, I said, Let's have them a hundred at a time. No, that's way too many. And then I said, I bet we could put it together in six weeks, this being August. I bet by the end of September, we could start. No, that's way too soon. And my reason for thinking that entertaining everybody in our home for dinner was a great idea was I grew up in the hospitality industry and making people feel important is just, you know, how I was brought up. Well. Frank initially res you know, totally resisted the idea, but as we kept discussing it, you know, kind of going round and round, uh, I, I could tell that he was changing from, you know, what planet did she set down from to, you know, maybe there's something to it, to finally, I like it. And six weeks later, we did begin entertaining people in groups of a hundred and would have people who knew each other, like would have the veterinarians or the accountants or the sanitation people yeah we would have um, and would have them in groups that knew each other because i could imagine that it might be intimidating to have dinner at the big boss's house but we set we set up our living room with a great big giant long buffet table and uh in case you're wondering yeah we did serve chicken but one of the coolest things about this was frank would wait on his employees 
and he'd stand behind the buffet table and, and serve his employees. And isn't that just the coolest thing that a Fortune 500 size company, the head of it, waits on his employees? And, and by the way, I should mention that the reason that he went along with my wacko crazy idea of entertaining 16,000 people over the years was I know, or at least I, I learned later, that a big thing that motivated Frank was showing people that they're important. And this, you know, the idea of entertaining every single person in our house fit in with his goal of making people feel important. And at these, at these parties, you know, there would be a hundred people and it, towards the end of the evening, he'd stand up in front of everybody and he'd tell them what was going on in the company. And imagine that you're a sanitation worker or a, I don't know, a cybersecurity person or whoever, and you hear the head of the company telling you, you know, the great things or the problems or the things that you know, we're worried about or what we're going to do about it. You know, if, if, you're, if you're part of a very large company, a Fortune 500 size company, and you get to hear from the boss's mouth exactly you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I, th I think your sense of engagement and ownership just increases exponentially. And then at the end of every evening, he'd use different words each time, but the last words he'd say would be some version of, I know that the company wouldn't be what it is today without you, and I'm grateful. Thank you. And, you know, again, what must it mean? Actually, I can answer the question that I'm going to ask, what does it mean to somebody to be thanked by the head of the company and entertained in his home? And here's what I know. There were, there were many funerals that I would attend because we, uh, you know, as, as a family business, we attend funerals uh, where the next of kin would tell me that one of the most meaningful and moving events in the deceased's life was being invited to Frank's home for dinner and thanked. Wow, that's, that's powerful. And so I'm guessing that took quite a long time to implement and do that if you're doing it in groups of 100 with 16,000 people, weeks. right? Wow, so you did it all. Wait. So y'all were... Well, so, no, so we would have... The, it, there was six weeks between when I told Frank that I thought this would be a really good idea to actually yeah. implementing it. And uh, it, it took six weeks before we started. And that meant, um, you know, reconfiguring a kitchen and having warming ovens and just, oh, and even having knives, forks, and plates. But it was always a buffet thing. But we, sure. we did get it started in six weeks. And then uh, pretty much three times a month would have groups of, of people, 100, maybe 150 it was if it was a large department but it was just so cool because it was a chance for him to interact with with people and for them to interact with him and yeah it just really worked and it was you know infinitely satisfying to me because well there there's a quote that that Frank loved but I believe in with all my heart and you know of the things that I'm going to say today this may be one of the most useful to people it's a quote from Henry James came from like 120 years ago. He was a psychiatrist and he said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And this was a way to show people, hey, we really appreciate you. You're important enough to us that we invite you to our home for dinner. 
Yeah, and pay expenses and 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 invite into your home, which there's a there's a principle of inviting people in. There's a principle of breaking bread together. I am very excited to hear that y'all serve chicken. I would have been very, uh, I would have had to follow up that question and said, so what'd y'all serve? What'd you have to eat? So anyway. Well, I'll tell you a little behind the scenes story of why it was chicken. First of all, Frank Frank loved chicken. Uh, you know, I, I would hope so. And, well, I would cook every night and I'd know that I would have a happy husband if I had chicken, fish, or pasta. If I served anything else, um, you know, he was a good sport, but he wasn't going to rave over it. So, you know, somewhere after the first year, I, I never served anything but that. But but there's another part to the story, which is uh, we never had these catered. We did have the cafeteria prepare the food, the uh, Purdue, the local plant cafeteria. And mm -hmm. you know, this is something, uh, it, it's not important, but it makes me happy. And it's this. Uh, the chef at the cafeteria absolutely loved these parties and I think loved me because of it. Uh, he got to try out all sorts of fancy chicken recipes that, that didn't belong in a cafeteria, but that would belong in, in dinner at night. So, I mean, he, you know, he'd tell me over and over again that he just loved cooking for, for these buffet parties. <laughs> so excellent. So you also even had the uh, food preparation people that were able to kind of spread their wings and have fun with uh, the situation also. Mitzi, those are, I think the first few minutes here have been incredibly valuable to uh, anyone running, running an organization or, or interacting with people. And I've taken a lot of notes, but I'm going to shift just a little bit here. Not entirely, because I think it still relates to, you know, the, the family history, the legacy. And I want to give just a little background because I'm, all, I'm almost going to allow you to give me some advice. Because uh, what I want to share is... I like I'm nothing a, better than telling people. Good. I was going to say, I like nothing better than telling people what to do. Yes. And, and so, well, I'm, I'm a business coach. I work with businesses and organizations and also some ministries in working with the leadership teams, helping to be as much as they can be and achieve and accomplish. And currently I am working with one, two, maybe the third one. And then also my wife and I are personally working on establishing some, we'll call it legacy type items, one client, I, and I don't work with them specifically in this, I work with their business and organization, but they're setting up a family office. Yeah. Uh, one, one is a, a younger family with younger children, but he's starting to think, what is his company? We're trying to build the company for a possible exit or a sale or, or, or offering so that he could then structure some things. And just in the last week, Mitzi, my wife and I have sat down and we've begun working on uh, things such as the guiding principles of our family, such as what are our core values, such as what do we want to see 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now? We've just had our first grandchild. And, uh, oh. and so, yeah, that, which is kind of a game changer. You start thinking differently about things. But I will say this, and I, and I say it as a preface to the question, all of those are probably like many of our listeners, first generation, attempting to establish something that lasts longer than they do. 
So with that premise, give some initial thoughts and advice, and then I'm probably going to dig and ask some more questions because you've been able to see this from two lineages, from two heritages that are phenomenal. And I would love personally to glean from that. And I believe our listener would too. Okay. I feel that, that on the question of establishing a legacy, it's never too early and it's never too late. And I adore the idea of codifying the values that you have. Brett Perdue did that, and I, rec- I recommend this to everybody. He, he did this when he was 80, but I think, you know, do it for your 30. He felt, he knew he was going to give his, his family material goods, money, but he felt that doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. And he wanted his, his kids to be happy. And he wanted those who came after him to be happy. And he felt that the best way to do that was to have the highest values. And so he wrote what he called an ethical will. Actually, we wrote it together. We spent, I'll tell you how we did it in case anybody wants to do something similar. We dedicated three days, you know, sort of total immersion into figuring out what values will make a person happy. Uh, And we, we came up actually with like 50. You know, we were just brainstorming, trying to get the best. But we both figured out that nobody's going to remember 50, that we should, we should narrow it down to 10. And to this day, I mean, that was, good Lord, that was, that was 20 years ago. To this day, his ethical will is still you know, frequently quoted by family members. Like the first one in this ethical will, 10 things to do if you want a happy life. The first one was be honest. Second one was be somebody who's worthy of trust. Another one was if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. And uh, others were hard work is is satisfying and fulfilling. Uh, but he also said, uh, have, belong to something bigger than yourself, you know, possibly your church, but it could also be, I don't know, maybe a political club, maybe, maybe something environmental, maybe a charity. But he felt that to really be happy, you had to have something outside yourself that you give yourself to. And yeah, how neat that he thought of that. But then I will also mention that he did a great many other things. Like, like here's one of the things that, that he did that I admired no end. By the time, and I was a part of it, so of course I like it. Uh, I'm a big believer in family newsletters. And by family newsletters, I mean the kind of thing, it doesn't tell trivial stuff. How about you interview the older members of the family. You know, what was life like when you were growing up? What were your biggest challenges? And the idea is that the more you know about your family, the more you sort of have a roadmap of how we do things. Basically, it's instilling a culture. And a culture, I'm going to define culture. Culture is, in its simplest form, the way we do things, you know, without even thinking about it. And uh, the families that leave a culture to accident are very often the families that don't survive because the cultures that come about by accident, and every family has a culture, the way we do things, 
But if it's left to accident, they're going to get a whole lot of influences from the outside that probably aren't going to help the family to, to continue across the generations. And I'll tell you, you know, just right off the bat, one of the values that Frank was very big on instilling is be philanthropic. That, you know, it gets back to, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. He, he was a deep believer that, that a family gets its identity, not just by the money that it brings in, but the good that it does in the community. And I've been monologuing for too long. Uh, ask no, me questions. That, and That's good. And, and, you know, one of the things that we see, and I know you've spoken on this and have expertise in this, is is what happens in most families. You know, I, I, I do strategic growth and planning in businesses and organizations all the time. But the odd thing about it, Mitzi, is that very few people do that in a family situation. And well, as I've as I've read some of the things you've done and studied and all, it is very obvious that there's some, I'll use a word that's thrown around today, intentionality, very intentional, focused planning. Just a newsletter, for example. There's probably some people going, well, you know, I, I've got a newsletter for my local club. I've got a newsletter for my information or my, you know, my business that's related, but I never thought of it for my family. So that what you probably just said was extremely practical, but also extremely different. So, well, actually, anyway. it goes even farther than that because, uh, you know, so many of the family stories are going to get lost unless somebody interviews the older people and, and asks them questions about it. And these are like roadmaps for living. They're, they, they instill the culture. But somewhere around maybe 15 years ago, since I study, uh, I study persuasion and I also study how cultures are formed, everything that I've studied sort of converges on the idea of if you want to instill a culture, get, get kids while they're young. And, you know, I'd, I'd already been writing a newsletter for probably 12 years or so, the, the kind where I would ask Frank ethical questions or moral questions or financial questions. And I'd ask the older people or the older generations questions that would be meaningful and like guideposts for living. But then it occurred to me, why don't I write a kid's newsletter? You know, for age, aimed at, at kids age four to 12. And I, I've been doing it well, there, there's a hiatus now because there aren't any kids exactly the right age for it, but oh, for probably 12 years. And, and I do intend to, when, when the young, when the fifth generation is old enough to want it, uh, I intend to revive it. But here's something that, that I just so recommend for everybody. Uh, I think this counts by the time you're second or third generation. I would have maybe four times a year a newsletter that was written in very simple language, you know, like very big type, short sentences, and with the understanding that in the case of the four-year-old, uh, you know, their grown-up would be reading it to them. But it would tell stories about, that, that would have like morals to them, almost parables, except they would be based on family history. And I'll, to give you a very specific example, uh, like, a somewhat recent one, the the Purdue family and the Hendersons too, for that matter, we, we're very big on being frugal. We don't want family members to get their identity by 
by spending lots of money on stuff. We want them to get their identity through service. Well, part of being frugal, uh, this is a newsletter that I wrote about it. The uh, great-grandmother, Mummy Do, used to make biscuits for the whole family. You know, would get together at Thanksgiving and a feature would be Mummy Do's biscuits. Mummy Do, and this is a story I'm telling the grandkids who never met her. She used to, you know, whip up the batter for biscuits. And then you've got a baking sheet and should cover the baking sheet with aluminum foil, bake the biscuits, remove the biscuits, scrape off the crumbs and then wash the aluminum foil with soap and water and reuse it. And the, the lesson there is that we're a frugal family, we're an environmental family, we don't waste, we just don't like waste. So yeah, they, they're getting a message that, that is, as you mentioned, the word that I like so much is it's a very intentional message that we are a frugal family, but that's not the end of it. Every newsletter would be accompanied by a treasure chest. I'm looking to see if I've got one within reach. Eh. Well, it would be a treasure chest about the size of a shoebox and inside it would be gifts for the kids so that they'd really be looking forward to the newsletter because kids like gifts. And each one would carry out the theme of whatever that, whatever that newsletter was about. So the one with Mummy Do and her biscuits, it would have the, in, in a baggie, it would have the ingredients for her biscuit. You just add water, have aluminum foil, and it would also have a, a kid's chef hat and a chef's smock. And the kids would make the biscuits and get to eat them afterwards, but they'd also carry out the idea of after they'd made the biscuits, they'd wash the aluminum foil and fold it up so it could be used again. And they and their grown up would talk about, yeah, we're a frugal family, we get our identity, yeah, recycling is just really important and, and not wasting. And so it's, it's just a very intentional way of teaching teaching kids who they are and where they came from. And oh, by the way, yeah. they're, they're, this is part of a bigger story, which is there's a woman that I just totally recommend to absolutely everybody uh, that they learn about, uh, about at Emory University, there's this woman named Robin Fivish and she studies what makes a family high functioning. And by high functioning, it means the family enjoys being together. The kids don't get in trouble with the law. They do well in school. In general, they're physically and mentally healthy. They're able to hold down jobs when, you know, when, they, when they're grown up. What makes it a family high functioning in that sense? And she says, yeah, I find this amazing, but I've, I've seen her research and I totally believe it and endorse it. She said, the more family members know their family stories, the more high functioning the whole family is. There, you know, it gives it gives something that makes your personality just reflect on and be grat have. I think it's even the wiring of the brain. You know who you are and where you came from and how we do things, and it knowing those things are just extremely healthy for a family. And and I can add something else that's of, of great value, and that is the families. And this is quoting Robin Fivish's research: the families that have more than five meals together in the course of a week. That's very protective against such things as substance abuse or getting in trouble with the law. If you compare the families where they have five or more meals together in the course of a week 
versus those that have one or none. You know, I can't guarantee that having five meals is going to make sure that your kid doesn't have drug abuse problems, but you sure increase your, your odds phenomenally. So, you know, intentionally, even if it's, you know, I know that it's hard. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe money's so tight that you're holding two jobs or, or news knows what, that it can be a real drag and a real inconvenience to make sure that you have meals together. But what's more important? You know, at the end of your days, what's more important than your intimate relations? Or to quote Jackie Onassis, she said, if your kids turn out right, nothing else matters. And she also said, if your kids turn out wrong, nothing else matters. So when I say have five meals together in the course of a week, I'm, I'm not ignoring that that's, that's a big ask, but the rewards are infinite. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember growing up, I grew up, I grew up outside of Atlanta where Emory University is there. And uh, we would we would have been, I guess, middle class, lower middle. My father worked in education. My, my mother did also. And it was very interesting. We had every meal together in the evening up until the time I entered high school. And then my schedule, I was the oldest. I started having a lot going on. And the second thing that changed things was when a Domino's pizza opened up locally in our area, we started eating much more pizzas. So I don't know what that says about me, but that's an interesting sidebar. You, you did bring up one thing that I, that I do want to go a little bit deeper on. You brought up the financial aspect. You brought up the fact that some people money could be tight and they may not be able to, to, to do things. But I also know that an abundance of money can cause challenges at times for people. It really does create a lot in us as humans. I would love to hear your perspective, because I know that there are people that may be listening that might be going, well, we may not be able to do a lot of those things because we don't have that type of financial legacy. I disagree with that. We are actually putting in place some basic things that we believe can continue, whether there's financial ab abundance or, or whatever there. But, but, but you know, the know family that, is... I'm yeah, sorry but, for but interrupting. What, Excuse me. That bitchy. Yeah. Yeah, go, 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 go. Because, but, but, uh, and I, let me mention one more thing and then I'll let you go for a while. Because also we have seen in society, families with an abundance have many challenges. So speak to both sides of that as best you can, because I know that that could be bouncing around in people's heads. Perfect. And, you know, to the extent that, that we can respond to what's bouncing around in people's heads, that's what I want to do. I mean, uh, I mean I'm here to try to, to share information. I'm 79 years old, and at this age, the most important thing to me is uh, to be useful to other people. So let's address first uh, the family where, I mean, maybe dad's lost a job, maybe mom is underemployed. And so money isn't just floating around. And I, I bet I bet that's most, most of Americans right now. I mean, these are really tough times. Okay, so under that circumstance, I think that that family should almost put as much effort to it into being close and supporting each other as, as anybody else, because 
the, to my mind, the most important thing that at the end of your days, when you look back on your life, I don't think you're going to think how much money I made. I think you're going to think, oh, my children loved me. They turned out well. I mean, that's that's what's really important. And so whatever you can do to, to foster that, I, I don't think the money, I, I just don't think that lack of money should prevent you from, from having a happy, happy, fulfilled life with your children. And by the way, I think that does mean not being their best friend when they're growing up. I think I'm a big believer in saying no, but let's, let's, let's go to an area that I'm a lot more familiar with, which is the families of abundance of, uh, how about filthy stinking rich abundance? I've you seen, said it. You said it. I didn't. That did. <laughs> That's oh, no, a technical term. You're right? hallucinating again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but what about those families? Because like you mentioned that you're working with a family that may have a liquidity event in which they sell the company. How do you keep the kids from, from just screwing up their lives? And by the way, that's almost the biggest question I ever get. Uh, how do you keep the kids straight? And I'll, I'll tell you the things that I witnessed in my, my birth family, my family of origin and my marital family. The, the, you know, my father was a captain of industry. He employed 20,000 people. He had 400 hotels, but he still took the time every Sunday after church services to have what he called family hour. And during that time, he'd, he'd instruct us on things that would be useful, like you know, telling us how stocks and bonds work, or he'd tell us about uh, that it's okay to spend the interest, but not the principal, or how just critically important it is to be trustworthy. Uh, how, or I can remember once him telling me or telling us that uh, the greatest pleasure his money ever gave him was in giving it away. And then he'd tell us endless stories about our, our you know, those who came before, like one piece of family lore that I just treasure is we had an ancestor who in the 1890s, it was a period of uh, bank panics. This man went bankrupt three different times, but every time he picked himself back up, went back to work, paid off his creditors, even though he didn't need to, and ended up being fantastically wealthy. Uh, and I love those stories of resilience that, you know, he's smacked down, probably not his fault. I mean, if a bank fails and your money goes with it, you know, you could be bitter the rest of your life, or you could do what what our, our family lawyer said, which is pick yourself back up, pay off your debts and move on. Uh, so father spent a lot of time uh, giving us, I mean, uh, giving us preparation for life, but then other things that they did, which I would recommend to every wealthy family that exists. One of the best things that my parents did for me and my siblings was we did go to private schools because uh, you know, that would help getting into college. But every one of us also went to public schools when we were younger. And yeah, that's just so valuable because if you always go to private schools, maybe you never meet people that I met. Like, like one of my favorites was a kid. You know, we, we, we shared a ride to, to school uh, every day. His name was Dickie Hallett. His father was a policeman. And he'd tell, you know, just these fabulous scary moving stories about what it's like to be the son of a policeman 
or or other friends uh, like one of them her father ran a dairy and you know I used I used to help at the dairy I'd help uh, it, it was just so cool to have to have to be aware of life that I think that that is just priceless for for somebody not to grow up in a complete bubble so again somebody who's going to if kids are going to inherit great wealth make them go to pi uh, public school for a couple of years or more. Uh, yeah. Other things, we had chores. And I can remember at age 12, something that was just amazing to me, since I was the youngest of five, I always had hand-me-down clothes. Uh, you know, when my two sisters outgrew the clothes, um, I'd get them. And then one day, mother bought me some gloves and they weren't hand-me-downs. And it was just the most amazing thing. You know, and I think that if I had always been given just everything I ever wanted, I think the feeling of gratitude wouldn't be there. So I, I recommend you know, to parents, make kids earn what they get, make, make gifts kind of be rare and special. Is that the philosophy of child rearing that you mentioned earlier that are some of those principles? Is that some of those? Yeah, I brought my kids up that way. Uh, and you know, one went to Harvard, one went to Berkeley, and they they have great jobs. So, I I think being a demanding parent is a good thing. I mean, you know, something that's almost dropped out of the vocabulary of of in the year twenty twenty one. I don't think we talk a whole lot about spoiling children, but yeah, you know, when I was growing up, and we're talking the nineteen forties, and if you can't do math in your head, I will tell you I'm seventy nine years old and proud of it. But in my era. They, yeah. You know, the big concern was don't spoil the children. Don't don't have them, you know, muck up their lives. Give them the values that will guide them. And by the way, Frank Purdue had exactly the same attitude. Uh, I used to be just dazzled where, you know, there was a point where between children and grandchildren and a few great grandchildren, I think there were like twenty, and he would write them long, meaningful, guiding birthday cards. Uh, he was, he, he just took such a great interest in, in every child. He would, oh, you know, something that both families did that I recommend to absolutely everybody, uh, assuming you can afford it. Uh, if you have enough money that you can endow family vacations, that's a great thing because it's a way for families to stay together after you're gone. The Hendersons, I mentioned my father started the Sheraton Hotels, but that wasn't the first family business thing that we did. The Henderson Estate Company began in 1840, 181 years ago. And we've always stayed together. And you know, two things keep us together. One is philanthropy. And the other is we have a weekend where we get together and just enjoy each other's company and find out what everybody's been up to. And, and at those times, we frequently tell stories about where we came from and you know, kind of preach gratitude and appreciation. Wow. Yeah, I think I heard that somewhere, and, and that's fascinating. So I want to ask one specific question about that, and that is, how many how many people typically would attend that gathering now with a, that goes back a hundred and obviously they're not still alive, but how, how many people usually would come to that family gathering? Uh, typically seventy or eighty, and we had our family reunion. We had our hundred and. I think it was 130th reunion because the reunions didn't stop until the company was didn't start until the company was 50 years old. So 
our, our first family reunion was 1880. And this year, um, or sorry, last year, see if I can do math in my head. I can't, I'm just not good at this. But we, we celebrated continuous reunions since 1880. I'm wrong, 1890, 1890 to 2020. I guess that makes 100, yeah. it was our 130th annual reunion. Yeah. And, no, and, but, but did I answer that 70 or 80 people show up and even virtually? Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, virtually in certain times that we're in. That, so that's phenomenal. And I, I think I had heard that somewhere. So that's, a, the, I think all, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what you shouldn't do. And I apologize. It's terrible <laughs> to interrupt people. But since, since you're being nice about it, I'll, I'll, I'll barrel on. Uh, I persuaded Frank to do the same thing. I told him how well it had worked for us. And the Purdue family began in business 121 years ago. I just misspoke 101 years ago. And we, we, we're still going strong. And I think family reunions and family philanthropy are two of the biggest reasons. I hope the newsletters yeah. help too. I, I think it all does. I'll mention something about that in just a little while. But the, the next, I think, question in my head, which might be in others' heads, everyone's dealt with family. And Many times in family, there is, I'll use a negative term, but people will know what it means. There's, there's a black sheep. There's someone who doesn't quite do what the family thinks they should do. I actually listened to something and you mentioned you had a relative that was in a cult, which that's not usually what people want. So how do you handle conflict or the outliers or the ones that may not be operating to the standards of that the family has set how how would y'all deal with those i'm sure you've had to deal with it in yeah, the number both of families, years both, both families uh, i mean I, I i i have a theory that how about everybody every family has a black sheep because okay this is my theory and i'm, I'm not speaking from academic knowledge but just from observation I think people get their identity by being different from from the others. And so I think it's it's a given that there will be black sheep. But as long as they're not robbing banks or whatever, uh, I'm for huge tolerance. Uh, like, well, like I have on, on my birth side, I had a relative who who was in a cult. And you all Here's a com comment on cults, something that was surprising to me. I always thought that cults went after people who were like low functioning, vulnerable. No, they really want the highest functioning, wealthiest person they possibly can. Hmm. Enter stage right, my sister. Uh, I mean, she's just perfect. She was, you know, college graduate, smart, dressed well. And somehow they, they not only got her, um, she climbed the ranks in the cult and she became a recruiter and a teacher. Uh, so how do you handle when, when somebody belongs to something that, I mean, I do think my dear father would roll over in his grave if he, if he knew that, but how about infinite tolerance? You know, if that's what you want to do, uh, we love you. Um, you know, please come to our family reunions and we're not going to pick at you for beliefs that we don't share at all. Uh, and so it remained loving, a, a loving family. In the Purdue family, 
there's there's also a somewhat black sheep who didn't follow the path that everybody else did. Uh, or, or let's take another example. Um, and I won't say which family there is, but one of the fa a family member who's since gone to her great reward uh, had the equivalent of Down syndrome. Uh, you know, in both both the cases that I'm describing, not the cult, but but the other two, uh, I recommend all the all the forbearance, acceptance, appreciation that you can that, that we're all different and there's room for everybody. And by the way, on politics. Uh, it, I again, I won't say which family it is, but we, ra we range all the way from uh, a professor of women's studies uh, who for a good bit of her life has been gay uh, to a uh, evangelical Christian who doesn't whatsoever agree with, with the family member that I just described, but kind of the family rule is we focus on what unites us and not what divides us. And we celebrate the stuff that, that we can and the stuff that, that we can't. I think there's a deep understanding that an argument isn't going to change anybody's feelings or opinions. Uh, if it's a deeply held identity thing, uh, you are wasting your breath to try to talk somebody out of it. So, yeah, whether it's sexual orientation or whatever, uh, accept and embrace and just don't focus on the things that divide you. And by the way, I should sort of keep an eye on the clock because uh, I'm getting close to. A yes, we are. I'm, I'm, I'm watching that. So we're getting close here. I have just a couple quick things and then we'll begin wrapping up. Um, the, I guess, final, final thing I want to ask before I have a few quick questions would be, um, the the human trafficking that you mentioned earlier to me you know we had before we recorded we discussed some spiritual things and we've as we've recorded here we've talked about uh, philanthropy and keeping your eyes on others as opposed to yourself and I know that that issue is one of the biggest tragedies through we have a private family foundation and I do some work with a ministry that is doing that they've got a group in China and uh, and they are helping some exit the trafficking. Uh, interesting sidebar. Interesting sidebar story. You would appreciate this. As the pan pandemic went along, there's a ministry that has a home to bring these women in, and the pandemic changed the economic structure so much that the person that's via the ministry that we do some work with got a call from the brothel owner and said, come get these girls. I can't make any money during this pandemic. And I think it was like 14 or 18 girls that they immediately just moved right over. So there's a lot of things going on bigger picture, even though things may not look great in some parts of society. So tell us just briefly about what you have seen with trafficking, what you're, you're obviously you have a passion for it. I looked at some things on your site and, and then we'll, we'll do our wrap here in just a few moments so that you can get to your next call and I can too. So can you do that for us? I'd, I'd love to. I got involved with combating human trafficking a couple of years ago when I saw a video of, I don't know, maybe, maybe a dozen little girls, ages 10, 12, maybe 14. And they were, they were about to be rescued, but I saw their faces. They didn't know they were about to be rescued. Uh, they had actually been recruited for an orgy. And this was a sting operation. 
when I saw their faces just like frozen in fear, despair, terror, and I couldn't unsee it. And then, and then I learned this lecture where I saw the video and it does have a happy ending, they were rescued. But I learned that those little girls would be raped 10, 20 times a night, 365 days a year. And if they hadn't been rescued, their life expectancy would be less than seven years because they were gonna die of an overdose or suicide or disease or murder for organ harvesting. And then I began learning how extensive this is. There are almost a million children in the world who are in exactly that situation right now. There are roughly 8 million people who are being sex trafficked and there are 40 million people, and this is according to the United Nations, actually more than 40 million, who are in slavery. I mean, they, they are slaves. And I thought, you know, the amount of misery involved in that. I mean, a, a woman who's been raped once, it's going to influence her whole life. What about somebody who's raped 10 times a night, 365 days a year? I mean, just the sheer pain, suffering, misery. It's... It's, I, I felt I had to do something. I couldn't unsee it. And I thought the, the one thing that I could do is, you know, I'm not, I don't have the skills or the knowledge or the history to be able to help individuals. But what I could do is I could help fundraising for other organizations. And I could also help with awareness because I'm a writer by trade. Uh, I write for most of my life, I've been a health writer and a science writer and an environmental writer. <clears throat> and I thought I could use those skills to help bring awareness. And so that's what I do. But I'll tell you one of the things I'm doing right now. And anybody who, if you're familiar with how to text something to somebody, I'd love for you to take out your phone and I'll tell you how to do it. Uh, if you've got a cell phone, go to the messages part and start a new message. And where it says two, this is called a short code. The short code is like a phone number, except it's shorter, 51555. So the shortcut cut to put in to the two part of your message is 51555. And then, now this will shock you and I hope you don't disapprove, but the message that you text, it's called the keyword is WTF. Now what's Mitzi Purdue doing with the word like WTF? Because I feel that that's just deeply appropriate for anything to do with human trafficking. It's the most evil thing in the world and WTF is totally appropriate. But if you will text WTF to 51555, you'll come to my website and it will tell you, I'd love it if you'd sign up for my blog I'd also love it if you would do something called, I'm putting on a bandana right now, and I'm turning into Rosie the Riveter, except it's Rosie the Liberator. And I'm asking everybody who wants to be part of this, and I'd love it if you'd be part of it, to take a selfie of yourself making a Rosie pose, and it doesn't have to have the banner. And if you're a guy, make it Rusty the Liberator. So Rosie the Liberator, or Rusty the Liberator. And post it to your social media with hashtag win this fight. And then particularly come to 
you know, texting 51555 to WTF, and I've just put it differently, uh, text WTF to 51555. You'll come to my website. You can upload photographs. Um, I invite you to donate $5 to an anti-trafficking organization of your choice, including get, get your friends who support your anti-trafficking organization, get them to do this. And I've already distributed tens of thousands of dollars through this. So it's, it's a really cool thing. And uh, I would absolutely love it. If you come to my website, you know, first of all, you can upload a photograph of yourself. You can see other really cool things that other people have done. But it's also a chance to volunteer if you'd like. And a promise that I make to you is that I will do my absolute best to use your skills at their highest and best level so that you know that you're making a difference. And if you, if you go to winthisfight.org, there's a place where you can contact me and I promise to answer you and I'd love to. Wow, Mitzi, thank you so much for that. We will, in the notes, include that uh, contact and uh, so that people can do that. Um, is that where you would want people to reach out to you? Is that how you want them to connect with you? I've asked that question often. Where would you want people to connect with you? Okay, well, there, there's a variety of ways. The easiest, if, if you're familiar with, with texting, is to text 51555, so 51555, text WTF to that number. That's probably the easiest. Uh, another way is just go to win this fight. Dot org, and you'll find how to contact me there. But that's also where you'll find out uh, how you can volunteer, how you can donate, how you can really make a difference. And my theory of life is that that you're judged or that success comes not from what you get, but by what you can give. And people ask me all the time, you know, what can I do to combat human trafficking? I've got answers for you. <laughs> That's beautiful. I know we're pressed for time here. We are seek, go create. Mitzi, which one of those words resonates with you the most and why? And then we'll wrap up here and be finished. Which one of those words? Seek, go create. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go with create because, I don't know, I almost think related to our creator that it's, uh, that, that creation just feels so, well, I'm, I think it's out of Matthew in the story of the talents. I think the good Lord intended us to use our talents as best we can, and creating is a way of using them. Wow, that's excellent. Misty, we, Mitzi, we could speak probably for a long period of time, and I'm hopeful that this is just a first connection. Thank you so much for being on our show. I appreciate it so much. If you're listening in and you would like to continue this conversation, just jump down into our socials. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You could continue the conversation. You could also find us at seekgocreate.com. Until the next episode, thank you so much for listening in and continue being all that you were created to be.